So, um, let me now introduce our guests for this programme. This is going to be a very interesting programme, um, a programme discussing lots of matters about international affairs, democracy, the state of our world. Can I first of all introduce Thierry Baudet, a member of the Dutch Parliament, leader of the Forum for Democracy, a political party in the Netherlands, but also an international grouping of people concerned about the state of democracy. And can I also introduce John Laughland, who is the director, as I understand it. And both um, John and Thierry have made a particular political stand defending democracy, defending the values of democracy and freedom and liberty, which used to be core values in the West, values that people fought for, that were established, and which are being eroded away. And when I say they've been eroded away, we've had an extraordinary period that we have just been through, in which the whole of Europe, the whole of the West, much of the rest of the world also, was in lockdown, people were placed in effective detention, often in their own homes, unable to conduct their businesses, unable to live their lives, and severely criticised and subjected to legal action if they protested or spoke out against what was done to them. And this is all related to a pandemic, um, of course, we've had many pandemics in the past. Nothing like this has ever happened in the modern world before, but it did happen on this occasion. And it happened internationally, and it, was also, it also took place nationally. It was also enforced by national governments, all without exception, with great rigour. And both John and Thierry, both scholars, I should say, they've written wonderful books on many subjects. They've looked into this subject. They lead, they, they are involved in a political movement, which is the only political movement across the Western world, in effect, that challenged right from the start throughout every aspect of this enormous restriction and denial of liberty. And that is the first point, I think, where we will start, because in a way it was both symptomatic of where we are going and also it was a further catalyst accelerating the trend to where we're going. And Thierry, if I may start with you, you've written a book on this topic. Perhaps you could introduce us, tell us a little bit about the book, and then we can perhaps explore this subject in a little more detail. Thank you. Well, thank you for inviting me and inviting us. It's, it's a real pleasure. I've been a follower and admirer of the Duran for some time and, and indeed it's ex quite exciting to, to be able to present the book with you today because it's, it's appearing this August, this summer. The Covid Conspiracy was a number one bestseller in the Netherlands so it, it gained quite some, some readership and I really hope that an international readership will also be interested in this story because what I what I try to tell is, is of much greater importance than just the situation in the Netherlands. As you rightly said in your introduction, this was obviously an, a, a global phenomenon. And the, and the interesting thing about it, I, I would say there are two things, two elements in this, this COVID uh, craze, this COVID mystique that has taken 
uh, over uh, political and social life during at least two years from, mind you, from January, February 2020 till uh, the moment when Vladimir Putin obviously cured COVID when he invaded Ukraine was the, 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 that that very day COVID was over miraculously. But okay, so during those two years, we witnessed effectively two 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 things. The first is that all societal checks and balances, not merely formal checks and balances in terms of fundamental rights, liber freedom rights, um, and in the judiciary, um, parliamentary restrictions on what the executive branch may or may not do, all these formal uh, checks and balances of a, a democracy vanished overnight. Uh, so this, the, the state operated as one block, imposing these restrictions which indeed ha have not been imposed since the dawn of time, essentially. And But, but also not just these formal checks and balances, but also the informal, the material checks and balances of a, a free society stopped functioning. Journalists were of one opinion only. They, they, they silenced every critical voice. Academic institutions, uh, uh, corporations, uh, businesses. The, the, the entire fabric of society in the way that I used to understand it as a a diverse series of different players with their separate interests that were sometimes aligning, sometimes conflicting, and that resulted in this quasi-chaotic manner through an invisible hand, as it were, in a free society where more or less rational uh, conclusions were drawn through all these players that had their, their, their thing to bring to the table. This vanished from February slash March 2020 onwards. There was one narrative that was pushed across the board. Lockdowns work to limit uh, the spread of, of, of a disease such as that. Mortality rates are not to be looked at in, at a st statistical level because we are dealing with something that is so beyond anything rational and anything we've ever seen before that we're going to give Ebola virus status internationally to this virus, which means that you know, all, all, all comparisons are off. You, you were not allowed to compare it to the flu. You were not allowed to say, look, the mortality rates are actually quite similar to what we've seen in the previous years and so on and so forth. You were not allowed, thirdly, to question the vaccine or the efficiency of the vaccines or, or the, the very uh, technology behind it, the mRNA technology, as a means to effectively vaccinate people against viruses. You know, this is, these are all serious questions that, that up until January, February 2020, people were allowed to ask. And, and all of a sudden, the entire fabric of society, all institutions overnight, they, they started pushing the same narrative. And, and, and that was extremely frightening to me, especially because this happened internationally, not just in the Netherlands, but also here in Britain in France, in the United States, there were a couple of governors here and there. In Sweden, you know, there, there were some people who were asking questions. There were some outliers here and there, but they were very, very marginal. And this was, this was the case across mainstream media, as I said, academics, big corporations, the government institutions, they all went along with this story. And so, and the second 
so this was for me, this was, it was really, really a, a very, very shocking thing to realize. There was absolutely nothing you could do. Big tech, the, the formerly free internet, stopped being free. I, I'm very aware that we're having this conversation right now and it's possible that it's going to be taken down from YouTube, from Facebook, that, that the big tech platforms are going to say, no, you, you're not allowed to talk about it in, in such a way. So this, ha and, and, and so it was not just the realization that all quasi-rational or um, countervailing uh, procedures that used to exist stopped existing, but also that this, these irrational and, and even dictatorial, tyrannical policies that were being implemented were implemented internationally, globally. So the, 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 the two conclusions that I drew from the COVID period were first, okay, our free democ democratic society is effectively, it's maybe not dead, but it lives, it exists only at the mercy of the government. If the deep state behind the government, or whatever you want to call it, if, if they allow a free debate on a particular subject, then we'll have a free debate. But if they don't, everybody stands in line. Secondly, this is an international phenomenon. So we may believe that we live in sovereign nation states where we have parliaments, where they have discussions about things and then the parliament decides A and, and another parliament decides B. And, and you, so you have a concert of nations, that kind of thing. That's, that's history. That, that's not the way the world apparently works because this was implemented on the very same day, March 16, 2020, Britain, the Netherlands, Italy, uh, France, they all went in lockdown. It's, it's impossible, it's inconceivable that this was a sort of spontaneous decision. <laughs> and thirdly, and perhaps even most frighteningly, I haven't mentioned it yet, but the sheer tyrannical nature and, and heartlessness and inhumane um, uh, nature of the policies we are being governed by people that are a irrational which is obvious there was there was from april may 2020 onwards there was absolutely no discussion anymore professor Ioannidis, uh, uh, major studies uh, all confirmed by so many other scientists of the mortality of covid which was comparable to the flu there's no serious discussion about it secondly lockdowns they don't work to to limit spreading of diseases. There was from May, June onwards, it was, the, 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 the numbers were clear, the statistics were there, it was absolutely unarguable that it was, it was working. Now, so on and so forth. So the irrationality of the decisions being taken, the international nature of, of these policies, and thirdly, the ability, apparently, of our, institutions of authority, the, the decision makers, those in power, to implement policies that harm people to the extent that it has, has left elderly people to die alone. It has caused enormous numbers of depression amongst the youth. It has destroyed businesses on a scale that is just, it, we're still suffering from it, the consequences. These three realizations made me change my life the course of my political party, it has changed my understanding of the world fundamentally 
And I found myself to be the only elected politician in the Western world, as maybe even in the world, as, but I, I, I'm not that familiar with people in India, for example. There may be other, but I was literally the only one in Europe, in the EU, in, who opposed not merely, uh, let's say, um, whether or not we should have uh, a curfew that starts at 9 or, or 10 o'clock or whether or not we should have so social distancing of 90 centimeters or, or, or 1 meter 50 or whether or not we should mandate the vaccines or merely make them freely available if you choose so. No, but I, I fundamentally attack the very idea that governments may impose lockdowns in the first place. This to me is just beyond the, the, the license of governments, beyond the rights that governments have. And, and I, I attack the mortality rates. I, I criti criticized the idea that it's equal to Ebola virus and so on. And I was really, I was literally the only one. So I felt, and, and, and I had huge, obviously, a, a huge uh, number of attacks. Part of my party was the largest party in the polls. We had just topped the polls. We had won the Senate elections. I was on track to become a member of the Dutch government. I was, you know, we were having drinks with former ministers. The former leader of the currently governing party had dinner with me and he ordered a nice bottle of French white burgundy. And he said, you know, you can have any position you want. That, that was the energy I was in. And all of a sudden I found myself to be the number one enemy of the state, the number one outcast in politics. And I felt I had to write this book to tell my story because I think this is, I may have been the only one to stand up, but I'm absolutely confident that a lot of people across the world have felt the same things that I have felt, have thought the same thoughts that I have felt. And, and, and this story tells the story of how this cartel behind the scenes is able effectively to push people into uh, acquiescing in the dominant narrative. People are very afraid to speak out because they don't want to lose their job. They don't want to lose their friends. They don't want to become an outcast. They don't want to lose access to all the benefits that you get when you are a you know, nice, jolly old part of the game, part of the, part of the, part of the party, part of the crew. Uh, so I, 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 so I feel this this book that that's now coming out. I, it may um, touch a nerve that people have. They sort of have a sense. I think a lot of people have a sense that our liberties, our freedoms, are sort of are being taken away. But where exactly is it coming from? Right? There's a very there's a sort of a, a very vague sense of. You know, something is off here. Something is just isn't right. But where is it coming from? How is it working? And 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 as far as I know, I'm the only one who was in a position of power within the the ranks of the system, speaking out, breaking out, and 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 um, uh, and everything that followed from the attacks in the media to to all the classical names that they drop. You know, you're a racist, you're a fascist, you're a misogynist, you're an anti-Semite, obviously you are a um, what have you not, uh, uh, anti-gay activist, <laughs> you're anti-democratic, you're, 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 you're a denier, you're a COVID denier, you're a climate denier, you're <laughs> they have these all these words that they just throw at you and, and, and repeat in the press endlessly. And obviously, you're a Russian spy. That 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 that, that is a sure thing. You're always going to get. 
But it tells this story, and I think it's it it it's still it, all these mechanisms. Even though COVID may be sort of over or feel like it's over, maybe it's coming back, but nobody really knows. But it's the, it's essentially the same thing with the Ukraine situation. It's the same thing with the EU, the euro currency, CBDC that's coming for us, immigration, climate change. They, they have a way, and with they I mean the, the global international deep state, those who shape the dominant agenda, they have a very effective way to create the illusion of, um, of uh, consensus. They manufacture consent, uh, to quote uh, the, the famous Noam Chomsky who wrote a book about this. They manufacture consent. And it is our job, and that's how I would like to make the bridge to John sitting here, it's our job to create a platform that counters this dominant narrative. We have to create a counter-narrative. And that is why during COVID, as I was fighting my fight in the Netherlands, and I, I wrote the book, and it was just within the Netherlands, it's a very vivid debate, and I think we uh, are amongst the, the nation and I do pride myself a little bit on having contributed to that a little bit with the lowest number of support for the lockdowns, the, the lowest number of compliance with the lockdowns and the lowest number of vaccination status. So the highest number of people that were sort of doubting, like, hmm, well, why are we doing this? What, what? So, and, and I think that's very important. So with, by creating a counter narrative, you can actually change the general mood in the country and i'm not saying that i was the only one to do that obviously there were other people great people in the netherlands and elsewhere bobby kennedy international other people but th this this just does create a difference and i felt coming out of the COVID period that we needed to 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 sort of scale up and bring the openness of the debate in the netherlands and we have a, obviously a long tradition of publishing Montesquieu and Voltaire and Enlightenment books and the Netherlands is sort of a it's an it's a country where sometimes new things come up uh, we had to create a platform to push this at an inter to an international level and that's when I reached out to John John has been an old friend and and someone I've been admiring for many many years I, I consider him he's the, he's the intellectual mastermind behind Brexit he has written the book on sovereignty which is called the tainted source and everybody should read that written great works on international law and I, I, I really felt that someone like him or actually just him <laughs> he should do this we should and we should do this together and that's why it's also exciting to be in podcasts together and to reach out and I hope if people see this and if they listen to this they might reach out want to reach out to us and and perhaps we can organize a conference soon and you would it would be wonderful if you would be there and we really need to create this because the and that's the final point I'll make and then I'll shut up and you can say whatever you want but the conservatards as I call them the mainstream conservative movement or the, or the, the established right the mainstream right has really betrayed us they it's clear now that uh, this is because this is the place where we both come from we come from a sort of mainstream conservative right and i know you come from a different place and that's why it's so exciting that people like us are now sort of having a conversation we're like oh hey we agree on this we agree on that that's very interesting but the the mainstream right has really shown its 
uselessness when it comes to defending the actual principles that we're fighting for. So what we need to do is create something new, create a new movement. And the term that I've sort of come up for with is anti-global, the global anti-globalist alliance. That's the sort of the, that, that's the line along which I'm thinking, and that includes obviously uh, defense of sovereignty, but also of national currency. Uh, therefore, uh, uh, it's an opposition against CBDC, now and so on and so forth. So these th these are just the, the, the grand contours of where I am and how all of this came about. And can I say this? There's, there's, there's <laughs> a lot of work. All of that is in the book, but also oh, yeah. other things. And I mean things like, for example, and if I can come to you, John, the collapse of law, because what has happened, what Thierry is describing, would not be possible without the collapse of law. And the collapse of law has been underway for some time. Now, I used to work in the Royal Courts of Justice in London. I was right at the heart of the legal system. I used to work with judges, high court judges, people who it would have been inconceivable to my to me once upon a time that they would be parties to this to this sort of thing and yet they were they 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 let it happen they're letting lots of other things happen too with every day that passes i see decisions coming out of courts which as legal decisions i generally truly do not understand and in my opinion it started again through quasi-international courts, as they're called. Um, I remember reading many years ago a book that you wrote about the trial of Slobodan Milosevic. Yeah. And you discussed there the whole way in which the Hague Tribunal that was looking into war crimes in Yugoslavia, it was set up in a very strange way. Mm. It's, it was changing precedents all the time. It was throwing out, throwing out safeguards all the time. I know some of the people who are working in those kind of international courts, tribunals. I've had arguments with them. And what is frightening to me is how the culture that started there in those very international institutions, that this is where we're going to come to the topic of sovereignty and the disappearance of sovereignty. Those, in, those international institutions, the culture that developed out of those international courts has now worked its way through into the national legal systems. And, well, do you want to well, that's, discuss that's this? Well, that's exactly what I wrote about. Yes. I, when I wrote about the Milosevic trial and the Hague Tribunal and the other international, uh, the, the growth of international criminal law, my specific warning was that these bad practices would indeed percolate, percolate down, and so it has proved. Uh, these uh, tribunals are a disgrace. They violate all the principles of uh, due process, above all, of course, the principle of the presumption of innocence, but many other rules besides. And I could see it coming, and so it has proved. And what you say about the judiciary is very interesting. My own uncle was a high court judge, uh, and he uh, made his name uh, defending, you may remember, a man called Clive Ponting, the, 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 the thing with Michael Heseltine, the Falklands War, the SS Belgrano, and so on. Uh, that was a, a generation or two ago when judges uh, stood up against the government. 
rather as journalists used to. Whereas now, as we know, for the last few decades, it's exactly the opposite. Journalists, and now also the legal profession, regard themselves as the guard dogs of government. And that is why uh, the COVID issue uh, is so important. The COVID issue, although it sprung upon us and we didn't expect it, we didn't see it coming, now that it's come and we hope gone, at least for the time being, we can see, I'm sure you agree with me, that the way that the COVID uh, pandemic was treated was, uh, COVID is obviously an illness, was itself a symptom of a sick society, of a society which was already sick, of states which were already sick. They were already corrupted. They were already infected by various weaknesses, by various political viruses, which meant that when the uh, the initial panic struck, they were unable to react in the, in, the, in the proper way. And when I say six societies, one of the things that strikes me most about the horrible uh, way that COVID was dealt with is that it was precisely the most liberal societies, supposedly liberal societies, Canada, Australia, uh, France to a large extent, although France is much less liberal, of course, than than Britain or the other Anglo-Saxon countries. Those countries with long liberal traditions became the most dictatorial. Now, why is that? Why is it? In my view, it is because those societies, those liberal societies with their post-national, post-historical, post-Christian, post-modern ethic have created entirely dislocated societies. People don't know where they're from. They don't know what they're, whether they're a man or a woman. They don't know... Uh, they have no sense of history, they have no sense of rootedness. And it's precisely in that sense of unrootedness or deracination that uh, people coalesce around or rather against a scapegoat. And that is, of course, what we saw in, in COVID. People were scapegoated if they were anti-vax or whatever. Uh, in other words, the, 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 the virulence of the, of the reaction uh, was uh, itself, as I say, a symptom of societies which had already become sick uh, through, through liberalism. And Thierry has uh, entitled his book the, the Covid Conspiracy. Conspiracy. So that's a, a radical title and it's a provocative one. But what you've just said, Thierry, about the narrative, you said there was only one narrative. Uh, we should never forget that uh, on the 7th of April 2020, uh, a press conference was given in Downing Street by the chief of the general staff of the British uh, Army, General Sir Nick Carter. The British Army at that point was building the Nightingale Hospitals. So you could say it was okay for the Army to be uh, giving a press conference because they were actually doing stuff. But in his press conference, he mentioned not just the hospitals they were building, which by the way were never used, but also the uh, important work that the 77 Brigade was doing in countering COVID disinformation. 77 Brigade is a, a PSYOPs unit, psychological operations unit within the British Army. And its role was to control the narrative, all right? The 7th of April, 2020. There was no counter-narrative yet on the 7th of April, 2020. Because the, the few little glimmers of resistance uh, in this country had not even started. If I'm not mistaken, the Daily Skeptic, uh, Toby Young's uh, website, was created, I think, on the 5th or 6th of April. It had hardly got going. In other words, they went straight for the jugular. They, they already knew... That in, at a time when most people were probably quite frightened and were probably happy to go along with lockdowns, they already knew that their goal was to control the narrative. And that has now become the primary uh, action of Western societies, is controlling the narrative. And we, we recently had in the Netherlands 
uh, in May, at the end of May, the Dutch intelligence services uh, published a report uh, suggesting criteria for forbidding political parties, for closing down political parties. And it's absolutely obvious when you read this report that it's Forum for Democracy, which is the target, potential target. But what is the argument? The argument is that for, though it doesn't mention Forum for Democracy, but, the, but the, the, a danger to democracy is posed if there are narratives if people believe certain narratives, in this case that there is an evil global elite uh, governing the world. So the, the idea is now is to take root in many countries, including in, above all I would say in intelligence services, that narratives are, pose a danger to the state. Which is an astonishing development. It is an extraordinary state of mind because of few things to say about narratives because of course the people who promote narratives are the very people who are imposing and enforcing all of these things and they're the they're the people who don't want to discuss facts yes. because we're talking but talking about narratives we're talking about debate we're talking about discussion but they don't want discussion on the contrary they want to impose narratives because what Thierry was describing in his book is in effect a narrative. It was a narrative that was enforced upon people about COVID and everybody had to go along with that particular narrative. It's people who were challenging the narrative who are the people that you go against. So it's again an extraordinary twist. You turn it round you talk about other people coming up with narratives when in fact what you're doing is enforcing a narrative of your own. It is a most sinister development, a profoundly totalitarian one. Profoundly, profoundly totalitarian. The other thing is, and this is again very symptomatic of totalitarian thinking, is the use of science or at least what is called Quasi science. science. The abuse, the abuse, the abuse, the abuse, abuse of yeah. science. Remember the, how scientific Marxism was used yeah. to, mm. to implement Soviet yeah, policies because it, it was it's the same thing. Absolutely. So you have, you say this is a scientific position, therefore anybody who challenges this position, this position is by definition irrational, is not in tune with modern realities, cannot argue with experts, cannot debate with experts because you're not yourself an expert and you must always follow the expert view. And again, coming back to what you just said, Thierry, that's actually a Soviet position. And the Soviets it's, it's were very much taking that line. Yeah. It's been going on for quite some yeah. time. I, 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 I did my PhD on uh, sovereignty and I was uh, writing a lot about the implementation of the euro currency and the interesting thing was that when I was starting to debate this subject and uh, this was in the between twin 2006 and let's say 2016 and those 10 years I was doing all kinds of uh, journalistic work I was working at a, a newspaper as a newspaper editor and a television program editor and the interesting thing was that whenever this was during the financial crisis so we were, people were talking about that is the euro a very good idea you know what should we do with the uh, inflation rates and so on and so forth interest rates uh, it was very very difficult to find renowned economists who would speak out against the euro so what happened was that the entire journalistic class 
which was, I would say, semi-literate. The people that I encountered at newspapers, they were semi-literate. So they, they had sort of, uh, they got a sort of a bachelor's degree somewhere, and then they started working here and there, but they weren't actually familiar with rigorous academic work. They weren't academics themselves. They were sort of, so they had this, this, this huge feeling of, uh, authority for a professor, university professor. It was like, uh, uh, uh. so if there was no renowned university professor who would speak out against the euro currency, in their mind they would conclude this is a consensus subject. That this was this was literally this is the way the brain of these people functioned. And then you know someone of a ren with a renowned name, a Harvard professor, would say, uh, you know, I question the euro, whatever. And, and that would really be a game changer for these journalists that I worked with. And then, but the game changer would not be that they would start thinking about what is an optimal currency area, what are the conditions for a, a currency to function, what are the actual tasks of a central bank. No, they, they weren't reaching to the abstract, they were watching it from a sociological perspective and like, oh, someone of authority is taking a different position. Well, maybe the debate will shift. Rather like you would watch a sports game without understanding the actual rules of the game. You would see one team advancing and then another team advancing. And you, you could sort of describe it without saying this team is right or that team is right. No, it's just a, it's a sociological process. And that is how now with the climate change, the same thing is happening. There's these, this IPCC, which is a fraudulent organization, which is set up specifically to, to monitor man-made, the, the impact of man on the climate. It's not, not there to research the climate. It's, it's there to, 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 to pick out those studies that, that say something about the influence of man on the climate. And then they have this, all these corrupt um, means of filtering out dissenting scientists, <laughs> papers that, that find that have different finds, uh, besides the whole, the, the, the very thing that they're doing which is, is projecting things into the future, which by definition is not falsifiable, therefore doesn't meet the fundamental principle of, <laughs> of science, scientific research. Yeah. But, 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 so, but, but the, the, the effect is that journalists, they get these, these, these papers, 3,000 page long. There's no single journalist in the entire world who is going to read it, let, let alone understand what is actually being said in these studies. But they get this report and they, they sort of, they, they write like there's huge report which says, and then in the executive summary it says something. And that is how, uh, they, th the science is used, or the quasi-science. With the vaccines, it's the same thing. There's so I was questioning the Dutch Minister of Healthcare every week during these two-year uh, COVID months, uh, the two years, uh, and there is absolutely there's no question that he had no clue whatsoever what mRNA is what a spike protein is. There was no way that he understood this, anything about it. Uh, or what the difference is within your immune system regarding naturally survived infection or vaccine-induced immune response. 
There was absolutely no way. So I, I was reading all these papers. I was actually studying the matter because I, I thought Im immunology is a very interesting subject. But a minister, apart from the fact that these people generally don't have the, the kind of brain that allows them to understand these complex issues, but also they don't have time. They don't have the time. They, ha they have meetings all day, journalists, civil servants standing around them. And that explains, in, in part, the uh, sheepish um, willingness of national governments to just go along with an internationally created narrative. Pfizer and obviously the CIA and Moderna, when CIA and Moderna are obviously very, very linked. Uh, all, all these organizations have hundreds of people creating very complicated <laughs> executive statements and that they go out to ministers and the ministers are like, oh, God, well, I trust the experts. And, and that's, that's how democracies die. That's how public debate dies. And it's happening right in front of our eyes. And the, um, the, uh, the, the reference, as, as you say exactly, the reference to science is one of the most stifling and destructive and, and, and dangerous things there, there are. Because people are like, oh, if it's, if it's proven, you know, who am I to... It, it but obviously it's never proven. That's not the way science works. It is in fact sinister because, of course, the nature of science, if you know anything at all about the history of science as it developed from the 16th century onwards, is that it thrived on debate. And in fact, debate did not happen to any extent over the COVID crisis, over the so-called climate crisis, over any of these crises, crises. Because a scientist today who goes against the scientific orthodoxy, the scientific narrative, if you like, takes on enormous risks. Just as, and again, I perhaps shouldn't overstress these points, but just as in the 1930s in the Soviet Union, if you argued against Lysenko over <laughs> genetics, you would find yourself in great difficulties. You would find yourself in great danger, in fact. Career danger, if not worse. So it's, again, an imposition, ultimately, of a totalitarian concept on science. You're no longer using science as a mechanism of, the, of inquiry. You're using science as a mechanism of control. You control the scientists, and through the scientists, you control the debate, and through the debate, you control people and, and, and society, and you also provide arguments, equipment to use to enforce all this narrative through the law. Yeah, I don't think we should be too uh, uh, blue-eyed, as they say in Dutch, in other words, naive about uh, the scientific paradigm that you've uh, referred to, the idea that uh, for centuries scientists were just uh, interested in discussing and exchanging ideas and whatever and always pursuing the truth. Uh, there's always been in science, at least since Francis Bacon at the beginning of the 17th century, uh, a desire on the part of scientists themselves to exert power through science. Francis Bacon wrote in 1605 that the purpose of science was to control nature and to establish uh, man's control over nature. Man would no longer be the victim or the subject of nature, but would instead establish control over it. And if you think about it, uh, throughout uh, history, from that point onwards, and possibly even since before then, uh, uh, literary figures and commentators have been very aware 
of the dangers of uh, government by scientists. It's in Gulliver's Travels. It's in uh, it's in uh, it's in um, uh, what's he called? Karl Chapek's book about when robots take over the world. Oh, yes, uh, you know, yeah, there are yeah, many, yeah. many, many examples of this. This brave, brave new world, obviously, <laughs> Frankenstein. Yes. So, so, uh, and I, I mention that not just as the for, to make a, an academic uh, uh, digression, but because uh, in the case of COVID, um, Professor Neil Ferguson. Uh, gave an interview a year after lockdown to the Times and he said we didn't think lockdowns were possible and then when we saw what was being done in Wuhan and then in Italy we realized that it was possible. In other words this was a scientist taking a political decision. Politics is the art of the possible. He thought it wasn't possible then he realized it was possible and so he went for it. With all the I would say cruelty that accrues to a scientist like him. Because uh, as it happens, Ferguson uh, is not a medic. He's not, he's never, he doesn't have any expertise in medicine at all. He's never cured, he's not a doctor. He doesn't, never cured people. He's a theoretical physicist and statistician who is predisposed as are many other scientists to regard, and including economists, to regard uh, society as a machine yes. and not as an organism. Absolutely. That is absolutely correct. Now, John, um, John, you talked about Thierry's book. You said the word conspiracy is a powerful one. Yeah. And it is. And I'm going to make here an observation based from personal experience, legal experience, because the way some people talk about conspiracies is they give the impression that there are never things like conspiracies. Now, any lawyer who's worked <laughs> in the legal system, knows that conspiracies exist. Yeah, they indeed. also know something else, which is that every, if everybody in a certain type of situation, say in a case, if everybody in the case is saying exactly the same thing, that is, and I again speak from experience here, that is an almost definite clue that you are dealing with some kind of conspiracy. <laughs> because people do not always automatically say the same thing even when they are predisposed to agree with each other unless there's some sort of something going on there will always be differences there will always be nuances there'll always be disagreements there'll be dissonances I'm sure you've all seen you will know the famous Jap Japanese film um, about you know the people the murder in which everybody sees it from a different angle but they're all describing essentially the same event if you actually analyze it they're describing the same event but if everybody says the same thing that is usually a sign yeah. of conspiracy yeah, yeah. and I have to say that <laughs> it's becoming very difficult even for somebody as generally skeptical as I like to believe myself to be, to avoid the evidence, the mounting evidence, that we are seeing concerted moves at some level. And we come back to the point that both of you are making about sovereignties. Because if you are doing away with sovereignty, you're doing away with that fundamental mechanism of control which has existed within the only functioning systems that we've ever had that have led to democracies, which are nation states. If things operate globally 
internationally as they have for COVID, climate change, what, whatever, the Ukraine war, we'll come to that, then you're dealing with unaccountable people. And when you have dealing with unaccountable people, you can't control them. And that, in effect, fosters a culture where, in my opinion, conspiracies can happen and can seep their way down. What are your thoughts about this? If I briefly jump in there, uh, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, uh, lawyers and, and the law deals with uh, different companies that make plans. Uh, we know from world history that people are inclined to all, all kinds of evil things and, and, and include it, willing to lie for it, willing to conspire uh, to achieve their, their several goals. And so the, the idea that the governments now, or any, any person or organization in power is somehow entirely benign and there's never going to be some kind of uh, plan to mislead the public or whatever is, is uh, quite absurd and um, testament to the actual power that the, I'm going to talk about it again, the deep state apparently has. Because the word conspiracy, to, to label it is in a negative terms, derives directly from a CIA conspiracy. I'm not sure all your uh, listeners uh, will know this, but this has been widely documented. After the murder of JFK, the assassination of John F. Kennedy in 1963, obviously, the, um, uh, the, those presenting alternative explanations to what had happened there, alternative to the dominant explanation, which was it was a lone wolf, was one guy uh, shooting from uh, above uh, a, a warehouse. Um, everyone who had different experiences uh, or, or uh, theories about what might have happened was deemed a conspiracy theorist and it was a very negative term and you were effectively a lunatic, you were crazy, you were not to be taken seriously and on with it. And so it, it, and it has been revealed with documents and everything included that this was a deliberate uh, operation, a, a PSYOP as it's called, a, a psychological, sociological operation by the CIA to re-establish faith in the government institutions, in the secret service, in the, in the system, as it were. So um, we, <laughs> we, are, we are actually, we are effectively dealing with some, and that's also why I, I, I wanted this word in the book, because it's a defiance, it's an act of defiance to, put, to use this word against the dominant narrative, <laughs> there we have it again, that, conspiracy, that talking about conspiracies is, is somehow something that is beyond the acceptable. Now, when it comes to the, the actual COVID situation, I think it's very important to understand that there is a very thin line between scenario planning and conspiring. And I, I, I would like to elaborate a little bit on this point because I don't, I don't, I'm not sure how often people, people make this distinction. It's, it's very subtle and it, mi it might even be that scenario planning turns into conspirating and, and vice versa in a sort of 50 shades of gray, gradual, uh, 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 gra gra gradual um, trend. Whereas, they, so they had the event 201, which was a, a huge simulation of a, the outbreak of a, co of a coronavirus, which was held in November 
2019. It was organized by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, by uh, several uh, government agencies, including the CIA, which was present. The CIA had a high representative present at that event. It was a physical event held at the Johns Hopkins University in the United States. And um, they simulated what would happen if a global coronavirus would break out. And they came up with all the conclusions, like lockdowns, face masks, vaccines, censoring different opinions that were then implemented half a year ago. Now, is that a coincidence? We may not know, but the, the f we, d we don't know for sure. That, but it's the, the fact that such scenarios are being planned is already, is, as it were, putting an implicit conspiracy in place, you might say, to, to, to get governments, to get businesses aligned when such an event would happen. And there have been about 10 such simulation events. Uh, Claydex is another one, Crimson Contagion. They've been held throughout the years, three, four times a year, for several years. Uh, but we also have uh, simulations now being held, or have been held, on what would happen if, uh, uh, let's say, a war breaks out in Ukraine. And so there you can you can see there's there are all these, these training events where government officials and journalists and businesses are being told what how to respond in the event of and out of 10 possible scenarios and possible events one may materialize let's say coronavirus or another one may materialize let's say war in ukraine right those are two uh, and then the other eight are, will may may not materialize at all like an alien invasion whatever there are all these these scenarios that they a hack attack a complete destruction of the internet uh, they have all these scenario planning and then they they make uh, a, a, a guidebook with principles and protocols if you if you plan or uh, organize 10 or 15 of these scenarios you you can uh, you can always say look it, it's not a conspiracy because we also have made scenarios for things that have never actually occurred but still you are moving into the direction of a world where everything is centrally controlled and that and uh, and that is why i think it is uh, entirely legitimate to talk about conspiracy because this is a this is a this is the realization what we've seen during covid was the realization of a conscious plan that was discussed and developed within a very small group of people that have held most of the crucial parts of the information uh, hidden from the public and that worked its way through to all the governments that sometimes knowingly sometimes unknowingly implemented the ideas and there's a there's a larger trend looming behind that which is the trend that uh, Tocqueville warned uh, against in the early 19th century, we are moving in the direction of soft despotism, bureaucratic despotism. And all these events, so I mentioned that there's like 10 events, the breakdown of the internet, 10 scenarios they're planning, the outbreak of a, a virus, a war somewhere, this and that, alien invasion, they have all these scenarios and they, they continue to, to create them and and work out how to respond but the 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 result of all these events is always the same the outcome is always the same more centralization 
less freedom of speech, less, less checks and balances in society, a weaker middle class, public-private partnerships, which means multinational corporations and supranational organizations fusing into a sort of corporatism that we see in the World Economic Forum, that we see within the European Union, that we see in all these, is these international organizations that are not accountable. They, they give permissions and licenses to huge corporations that then can, can reap the benefits. But if things go wrong, they're going to be bailed out by taxpayers. And the politicians that have given these corporations these, these huge markets effectively and of often legal immunity, as in the case of Pfizer, Moderna and so on, these politicians will probably, after a few years, get a job as a lobbyist for these organizations. So they will also get a piece of the cake. We see the same thing with the military-industrial complex. It's, it's exactly the same thing. The politicians that have started wars will then become lobbyists for the war machine or come from a board position, board of directors position from a huge, from Lockheed Martin, for example, and so on. So it's a circle. It's a, it's a closed circuit where they plan scenarios. They decide what to do in the case something happens. They may or may not. That, that remains an open thing. They may or may not have actually pulled the switch of unleashing the virus from Wuhan into the world. We don't know that. There's probably no way that we can know it. But it's not important either, because the important thing is there is a, a grand direction, a grand strategy, a grand um, plan, if you will, to move towards this world of You've mentioned Brave New World. I'd like to mention The Matrix, the movie The Matrix, yeah. where we are effectively, as humans, as individuals, completely brought under... Uh, we, live, we live a biological life, but we don't live a free life anymore. And, 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 and um, whatever happens in the world, <laughs> the conclusion will almost always be more centralization, less freedom, and uh, more privilege as to an ever smaller Oligo um, oligarchy uh, that exists at the global level. Absolutely. Can I just say again what you said about planning a scenario and that leading to... Yeah. I mean, that is a concept very well known to criminal lawyers. Yes. If people get together and plan something, yeah. the temptation to act on that plan is always extremely strong. In fact, sometimes it is irresistibly strong. And again, I speak from experience. I have seen it happen. I've seen scenarios where precisely that thing took place. So there's nothing, nothing yeah. surprising about that. That even, shouldn't even be controversial. But it's also, it, yeah. I, I am a very uh, un, unparticular, atypical politician. Normal, normally, somebody goes into politics because they are interested in power. Yeah. I went into politics because I was interested in truth. Yeah. And that is, that, is, that is a very odd thing for, for them. They are not in... My, my colleagues, the people I meet in politics, I've hardly ever encountered a politician that, who was interested in what is actually going on in these situations. No, they're interested in how to use a certain situation to further their position, right? That is their activity. 
that's what they get energy from. And then they have a dinner with the French ambassador in the evening, and then they go to a press conference. That is what excites them. That is their human motivation. And so it's not very hard to see, and, and for anyone, so if you unleash a certain situation, their response is always going to be, what can we do <laughs> to step in and, uh, you know, how can, can we make rules, can we make new laws, can we uh, yeah. take money from these people and put it there? And that, that is the nature of demo at least democratic policy politics. Can I just say, because of course I come from a political background, my aunt was a very prominent politician in Greece. She was a, she was a cabinet minister. She was minister of culture. And what you say is absolutely true. <laughs> and a politician who is interested in truth is going to be very, very unsettling indeed yes. for other politicians. I can say that with absolutely definitely. But again, politicians are people who in the West, we sort of came to know how to control because we had a kind of democratic policy politics in the past and it came from below <laughs> but we had we had politics it was all very much constructed around the nation around the state we had elections we had political parties we had electoral blocks to which those politicians were ultimately accountable and to which um, you know, they had to interconnect, they had to worry about their electoral bases. And you're absolutely correct, I come from the left. I mean, that my background politically was a left-wing one. I'm, I think that's a historic reality today. I don't think the left today that I see has any relevance or connection to the left that I used to know. But that was, that was how it was. There was a, a left, it was a political movement. That is impossible today in the kind of political environment that we have now. Now, a short time ago, we had on the Duran um, an interview with Václav Klaus, who was the former president of the Czech Republic. And he made a very interesting observation because he was very unhappy about the fact that the Czech Republic was being pushed into the European Union. He didn't like the, he didn't like the Lisbon Treaty at all. He was coerced into it. And he spoke about an argument that he had with Václav Havel. And Klaus said, what I wanted was parties. I wanted real political parties. I wanted yeah. political competition between the right, of which, of course, I was a part, but I also wanted the left. I wanted to have a left. I wanted to have diversity, because for me, that is what not just democratic politics, but politics is about. Cla uh, um, Havel said, we don't want political parties in the Czech Republic. We want everything to be structured around what he defined as civil society. Havel was fully supportive of the European Union, full integration within the European Union. Klaus was very unhappy about it, but was pushed into agreeing to things. And today he told me, he told us, that he bitterly regretted having gone down that, that, gone down that route. Now, you've, you've used the word globalist, you've talked about the deep state, you've talked about um, all of these international institutions. I've said how, taking my cue very much from your 
previous books, I've seen how national legal systems have become corrupted and distorted which with what is coming from these very same international institutions. Is this internationalization of politics because ultimately the problem? Is that what is what is the problem? Because it's becoming an even worse problem. You said here one thing that stood out for me, and it's absolutely true, about companies like Pfizer being given immunity protections before they did anything wrong. That's not a legal position, that's anti-legal position. That is, that is actually anti-law. It's, it's difficult to explain to people how completely contrary to the whole legal tradition that is. But is that where you th do, do perhaps, John? Yes, I think, Gio, I, I think, think internationalization is, is actually the biggest problem. I think if you have to define the problem in a brief and easy to understand way, I don't have a, I don't have a problem with that. I think that's a good way of describing it. Because the, the centralization of power, the alienation of power into the hands of various cartels, whether they be international organizations or or collusion between big companies and uh, governments, whether national or international. Uh, this uh, alienation of power uh, is, of course, favored by international bodies because, as I've uh, said many times in the books I've written about international tribunals, the key thing about an international organization is that there is, of course, no structurally, no accountability. There's no possibility of accountability. Uh, between the decisions that that body takes and the people over whom it has power. So if, uh, to take an example, if uh, a war crimes indictment uh, triggers a revolution in a country, so let's say uh, the war crimes indictment of Gaddafi trigger, triggered uh, a revolution and a civil war in Libya in 2011, aided of course by NATO, uh, the International Criminal Court, which uh, by issuing the arrest warrant against Gaddafi, uh, 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 of course, explicitly, I won't even say implicitly, explicitly supported NATO. Uh, is there any blowback uh, for the 10 years of civil war, more than 10 years now, for the hundreds of thousands of people who have died? Of course not, because structurally there is a structural disconnect. Uh, and the fact that it's a legal uh, body uh, is, uh, in a sense, uh, I irrelevant. What I mean by that is that uh, it's the, you have the same structural disconnect, of course, with the World Health Organization or the European Commission or whatever. But uh, unlike in a national system, okay, judges, of course, are always independent. They don't, they're not, uh, apart from in some countries, they're not elected or whatever. But they're independent, but they're, on the contrary, they're independent in their functions. But if there is a dysfunctioning somewhere in the legal system, they are, of course, embedded within the overall constitution of a state. And so one hopes that the legislature and the government can correct whatever dysfunctioning, dysfunctionality it is. So, for instance, take the British case, they could rescind the Human Rights Act or whatever. They can take some decision to, to bring the uh, judicial uh, system back under, under control. But, of course, that mechanism simply doesn't exist. And, uh, and yes, I think internationalization is also a problem uh, in the sense that uh, we were talking about conspiracies a moment ago. Um, when you look, and I, I mentioned this re recently in a, in a lecture in Amsterdam, when you look at the documents about the creation of the CIA 
in the uh, uh, 19, period 1945, 1946, 1947. Uh, I just mentioned the CIA because it's the intelligence agency that everyone's heard of, but there are in fact 17 intelligence agencies in the United States. There isn't just one, there are 17. But in, when you look at the documents, uh, the, the, the various uh, minutes and so on, of, uh, behind the creation of the CIA, you can see that the whole purpose of the CIA was not to collect intelligence at all. That was absolutely not its purpose and never has been its activity. It was on the contrary to conduct psychological operations, to influence the narrative, to penetrate the left, because within the context of the Cold War they wanted, of course, to neutralize the left, which they succeeded. Francis Stoner Saunders' fantastic book on the cultural Cold War shows all this. Uh, uh, so, uh, and of course, but of course, it was masquerading the CIA, like the other intelligence agencies, as something directed to abroad. Mm. It, so, it was an element of foreign policy, mm. if you like. It was an element of international policy. So, uh, th that is another example of how internationalization uh, corrupts. And of course, these organizations work on the need-to-know principle. So, if the president of the United States says, uh, "We would like to see." then the CIA responds, sorry, Mr. President, you don't have need to know. That's right. And nobody controls them. There's That's absolutely right. no control over That's their right. powers. And, and incrementally over the decades, uh, because we, were talk we began our conversation about COVID, but prior to COVID, for I would say at least two decades prior to COVID, so let's say from the 2000s onwards, probably from the 1990s onwards, there had been, I would say, for several decades, there had been no more disagreement about foreign policy. It started in foreign policy. So in the Vietnam War uh, in the 70s, some people were in favor of fighting communism, other people were against the Vietnam War. There was a big debate about it. By the time you got to the Balkan Wars of the 1990s, there was only one narrative. You, you, if you read the Daily Telegraph or the Guardian, you found exactly the same uh, position. And that, uh, that unanimity, that, that single narrative uh, which we now see, as I say, in, in health policy and in climate and other things, that started in foreign policy. Because the foreign policy establishment, <coughs> like the intelligence establishment, like international organizations and ultimately like big corporations, they can act with impunity because they can impose things, uh, so to take the case of the Americans, on other countries. Uh, let's take the example of wokeism, which actually does not uh, work so well at all in the United States because there's lots of opposition to uh, abortion and other, and other progressive policies. Uh, but the foreign policy establishment has free reign abroad because there's no structural accountability. Absolutely. Can I just say what you said about the CIA <laughs> not, be, not being good at intelligence or even interested in it? It's not interesting. Gathering information. That's been confirmed to me by former members of the CIA. Yes. They're not good at that. They're it's not in the even documents. interested it's in, the in it. And uh, Thierry, I know that you're interested in cultural matters. CIA has been very heavily involved in questions of culture. And, uh, for example, in the 50s and 60s, they promoted musical modernism, uh, atonal Jackson music, Pollock. all that kind of thing. Um, and it's always interesting which direction they have been pushing us towards. Yeah, the, the, the CIA fought the Cold War not in the name of traditional society, but in the name of modernism. The West was going to be more modern, more progressive than the Soviet Union. That was the whole, that was the narrative. And, um, 
and now we're stuck with, uh, with a society that is deeply infected by what I tend to call cultural Marxism. So you had economic Marxism in, uh, behind the, the Iron Curtain, obviously, but you had cultural Marxism, which penetrated the CIA through the Frankfurt School. This is also well documented. The, the thinkers of the Frankfurt School the, that created the cultural Marxism, which believed ultimately that if Europe wouldn't do away with the um, uh, the um, uh, the, uh, the classical father figure and the the, the, the classical family structures mm. and, and and a history that we were mm. proud of and aesthetics mm. and national identities that we would ultimately we would always get back into fascism we would fascism would follow where a, a traditional family exists there fascism will follow that was the basic uh, which i think is a, is a, is a is a, is a ridiculous conspiracy theory, <laughs> <laughs> if I may use the word in that context right now. But th th that is what they believed, and th that penetrated completely the cultural, uh, academic world uh, of the West after the World War, but also the Secret Service, and the, it was part of the, the uh, denazification plan of, of the Allies, essentially, of the Amer America primarily, but also Britain, to make sure that no German would ever march on tonal music again. That's why Karl Heinz Stockhausen was promoted, who was a, I'm not sure everybody knows, but was a real, a, a, an extreme promoter of atonal music that was impossible to listen to and, and breaks every glass that is nearby. But it's, he was promoted to be the, the head of one of the most Im influential musical institutes in Germany. And, and modern architecture was promoted, modern abstract expressionism in, in the arts was promoted, and also a very liberal sexual morality, which followed directly from the work of people like um, uh, Herbert Marcuse, mm -hmm. who believed that if, you, if we don't liberate the sexuality of the, of the man, then through the Oedipal complex, he will ultimately become a fascist again. And, and that is also why um, in the authoritarian personality, which is a huge study that another member of the Frankfurt School, his name was Adorno, undertook an empirical study, uh, a, a huge emphasis was placed on the sexual life of quote-unquote fascist-minded people, which mm -hmm. were right-wing people, traditionalist people. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was stated, it was claimed, mm -hmm. I think this is all pseudoscience it's quasi this is a, a typical example the frankfurt school is a typical example of a of a thesis that is is proof of its own value it's a circular argument they're presenting but they they stated that these traditionalist people you know right-wing people uh, people that were more conservative in in their ideas had more conservative sexual morality and therefore that you know it was likely that they would be more susceptible to fascist behavior and they, they, they developed this test, which is the F scale. Anyone can Google this, they can, you can do it online, you can do the F scale test and, and have all these questions being posed to you. And, and then the, the, the solution was to, to, de, to, to make America and the West less susceptible to fascism whatever it may be it's never defined they never define fascism they just refer to it as the worst and we all know what it is but 
it's very it's actually it's a very difficult question what fa how to define fascism what what really happened during the second world war in terms of ideological clashes and and wouldn't you say that fa the essence of fascism is really corporatism which is public private partnerships hey that is interesting wow i mean this these these are all very interesting relevant discussions but none of that ever interested the frankfurt school they they had just set their mind on destroying the traditional family and the traditional sexual uh, boundaries of European life by promoting uh, sexual, uh, how, how do you say this, di diversions in English, is yeah. that the word? Uh, uh, anyway, um, like uh, LGBTQI+, that is an intrinsic part of the philosophy of denazification yeah. of Europe, which still haunts the mind of Europeans and conservatives. You, 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 you only have to use the word mm. uh, anti-Semitism. You know, everybody's so afraid. Racism. Ooh. It doesn't have mm. to have any relation to the actual ideas of the person. You know, if someone says, I, I, you know, I think maybe we should uh, reconsider immigration. Oh, you know, racist. Mm. Oh, no, 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 no. And, <laughs> and it's just, it's a way yeah. to uh, to, to, to scare people into obedience. Again, it's been going on for so many decades and it's, uh, it's hardly being discussed. It's, it's really, I, I would not be able to name three conferences or three major publications or, or television programs or whatever where uh, people are having these kinds of conversations about the state we're in, where, where it all comes from, how uh, limited our uh, quote-unquote sovereign democracies really are in, in deciding their policies that they would like to implement through all these international treaties and so on. And, and th again, that is why I think it's so important that we're, we're setting up this the forum, this international forum that, that you're here, that we can be here with you. And I think we really need to do this a lot more. Absolutely. Can I just say, because of course my aunt was Minister of Culture in Greece, she was, of course, left-wing, and she was also a populist left-wing person, and work, uh, interested in, in working class people in the 80s. And of course, I had many, many conversations with her, and she would say she would say many, many of the same things that you have just said, from the position of a classical, old-fashioned left-wing minister of culture. What she was worried about. And of course, she was interacting all the time with working class people in Piraeus, which is the port in Athens. She said that the kind of culture that is being imposed is dissociating working class people from the dominant culture. And she was extremely worried about this. Her concern was to bring back culture and people together because she saw that as absolutely fundamental to strengthening democracy and society and in fact to promoting to raising up if you like working class people and that was by no means an unusual left-wing position that was in fact in some ways the classical left-wing position yeah. so it's bizarre 
today to hear all of these views being, you know, said people From say this is, is on the right. On the right, but, but that is, it, and just people say that this is fascist to talk in that fashion. Yes, it's, but it's, I, I it, keep it, having it these. It sets again the whole thing on its head. Uh, and that's so. That's why this is such a creative period in time because I am also realizing that I. I was working with this label, you know, right wing or conservative, and and that oh, you're left wing. Oh, so they're designed to be oppositional. Like I'm a left wing. Oh, I'm a. But now it, we're sort of we're seeing the world anew, and we are seeing each other anew. We're having genuine conversations and genuine encounters with each other, and that is that is really a new thing I find, and that is a wonderful thing, and probably the thing that they're most afraid of, which is why they are doing everything to to um, suppress the narrative that we're creating. Mm. They want us to, to, to be separate. The same is, by the way, true as much as I oppose immigration and unlimited immigration, open borders. There are these Muslim communities, immigrant communities in, for example, the Netherlands, where I, which country I know best, that are entirely up to speed with all the things that I, I talk about, I write about. And Okay, yes, we have our differences, and yes, I, I think immigration really is, we have to stop, continue, and, but they agree with that. They, they are very aware that, that continuous immigration is not going to make the country safer and economically more vital and all these things. So once you do away with this, this, this distinctive thinking and, oh yeah, I'm, I'm right, I'm left, I'm a nationalist, or I'm, this, I'm a multicultural, whatever, you, you are actually forming a, a real alliance. And I think sometimes in my darkest, most conspiratorial moments, I think that that is the thing they're most afraid of, that we are reaching out to each other and making friends and, and seeing the real issue and the bigger enemies that we have to deal with and the bigger, the bigger issues. Absolutely. Shall we, shall, anyway. we, shall we talk a bit about foreign policy? Because foreign policy is central to this whole thing. We're now in a period of extreme international tension. There's no debate about this. This is completely the same as what we've been hearing about all the other topics. We can't really debate foreign policy. It's very, very dangerous to come out and take a stance against the militarization of our relationships in Europe. We all have to agree with the, the line that's been taken about Ukraine. We can't talk about the previous history of this crisis in Ukraine. And you can take, any people are at liberty to take different views about it, but they, it's not acceptable even to talk about this anymore. And what I again find very alarming is that I read things in the Western media about this conflict, which are so factually wrong, so completely opposite yeah to things that have actually happened. So entirely delete or ignore actual events that led us up to the point where we are now, that it is impossible that the people who are writing these things are not conscious of the fact that they are suppressing these facts. They must know what they are doing because in order to suppress them so completely, they must know them. They must know about them before. Can you give an example? But you think well, the Minsk Agreement. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a simple. The one. I mean, nobody yes. talks about the Minsk yeah, all Agreement. All the history. Of the nobody. Donbass. The history. Of the, or, or, or even what it says. <laughs> but if you if you read the Financial Times, 
The Guardian, if you go to the BBC, Minsk Agreement is a topic that is completely not spoken about anymore. Well, I think that um, this war is being prosecuted also for the reasons connected to the kind of things that we've been talking about. I was very interested what you said about your aunt and the, her desire to see working class culture remain in place because clearly what she feared, what she saw coming, uh, was the shock doctrine, was the Naomi Klein shock doctrine which would atomize uh, otherwise cohesive societies in order to make them easier victims of capitalist exploitation. It's as simple as that. And uh, one of the reasons we can leave aside the, the issues of NATO and all the rest of it, but I, I'm, I'm convinced, I've said this for many, many years, that one of the reasons why, why Russia is so hated uh, is precisely to do with these uh, issues of sexual politics that we, are, that we were talking about a moment ago. Uh, you know, um, uh, Putin, uh, his public persona is that of a real man, a bit like uh, Erdogan in Turkey, and there may be other examples. You know, he's macho. He's not only macho, but he is a bit macho, a bit like Berlusconi was, uh, and there may be other examples. And I think that the, the fact that Russia has this leader who is admired by his people, because that again is a, uh, a, a thing that we've lost in the West. Nobody... There, almost no Western leader is admired by his electorate uh, or her electorate anymore. They are perhaps, they're not even controlled anymore, but people, people we don't even have people that they can admire. The idea that you have a, 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 you know, a man of stature who, who exudes virility and who uh, exudes authority, exactly the thing which Adorno didn't want. <laughs> uh, he called it authoritarian, but actually it's authority. Those, I think, are the subliminal emotional reasons, and of course the, re the fact that Russia is renewing with her national history and trying to uh, do what the Germans call Vergangenheitsbewältigung, to sort of comprehend uh, her own very obviously tragic history in the 20th century, whereas Europe, of course, is turning its back on its own history and pretending it didn't happen. Uh, all these things, I think, are the are the, the the deep at the deepest emotional level are the reasons why why there's this uh, complete obsession with Russia. Can I just say one of the most interesting things if you follow Russian affairs and Russian internal discourse it, that, that's been developing recently is of course the Russians, and I don't just mean uh, you know, the political Russians, I mean a large part of the Russian intelligentsia which has historically and traditionally focused on Europe They've been seeing developments in Europe, yes. and they don't like them. Yes, yes. And they say that what we must do is we must preserve the best of Europe here in Russia. We are becoming yeah. the last refuge, yeah. in effect, the fortress, if you like, defending European values. You said yes. that. Thierry said that in a speech. The, uh, the odd thing is yeah. that the yeah. Iron Curtain, while uh, yeah. obviously destroying the economic system in Eastern Europe also protected it against cultural Marxism. Mm. So the countries in Central Eastern Europe and certainly in Russia, the, the European part of Russia, has not been, has perhaps even been immunized against these cultural Marxist trends that have now taken over almost completely the, the, the conscience of uh, of Western Europe, and uh, indeed, I, I when I look at Russia today, I do feel that there is a 
it, it rep represents a sort of a natural antidote to a lot, a lot of these, these trends. And if I just may mention one final one in, in that respect, is that Russia is probably the natural leader of the opposition against the climate change mystique because of its vast fossil fuel resources. It is the, the, the country, the opponent to this, this, this idea of an energy transition, which is not going to work, which is based on, on, on fake science and which will destroy our entire indus industry and thereby wealth and economy and, 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 and everything we have built over the past 200 years. So uh, there's a, in that sense, it also, it seems to be the last vestige because the rest, the whole of the West has been taken up by this, this mystique, this, this millennialistic idea that we must uh, prevent uh, a sort of new um, flood, like in the, in the Old Testament, <laughs> because of our sins, the sea is rising. Absolutely. We've heard that story before, right? We've heard that story <laughs> before. Um, so where do we go? How, how do we resist? You've, you've created the Forum for Democracy. I'm absolutely horrified, by the way, with what John said, that there is, in fact, a law being discussed yes. in the Netherlands. I think that's one of the most sinister things I've heard over the course of our discussion. I mean, the Netherlands coming round to even talking about banning political parties, and I'm going to guess that it's not provoked the kind of uproar and anger and protest that no, perhaps that's the scariest do. part that's yeah. the scariest uh, part nobody stands up for you because they they're like well I, i'm not uh, that party so but then of course they're coming for the other parties <laughs> and then there's no one to stand up for you but so uh, how do we go about i i think the answer is twofold firstly it is absolutely essential to create platforms such as yours but perhaps also john and i are going to create more platforms. perhaps we're going to try to organize at least uh, once a year a, a big conference where anti-globalist, if I may, just for the time being, perhaps we can work with that term, people like us, like-minded people from the left and the right, previous left and right, can come together and discuss this, but also podcasts and so on. This is essential. And that's also how I use parliament, because it's a platform. It's a place where I can speak to the nation and reach people and, and ho hopefully get them to think about these things and think differently about them. and publish books and so on and so forth so that's the first thing the second is that we are building a network that is social and economic we have launched an app on your iPhone which is the forum app and we're now working on internationalizing it so making it available accessible to people from other countries where you can offer services you can set up your web shop you can offer products you can get your house on like an Airbnb network you can go on dates we have a sort of Tinder function, we have a chat function, all these things. And, 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 and this is specifically to build the network because people don't come together, as uh, Robert Nisbet, the, the sociologist famously said, simply to discuss things, they come together to do things. You need to create a social and economic <coughs> framework which is, I mean, this app is just one example. There are obviously others. And the, the, the term for that may, may be a parallel society. We need to start buying stuff from each other, hiring each other's services. We need to, f to make sure we have some infrastructure, perhaps a bank. God knows how urgent that is. If you see what happens to, our, to my friend Nigel Farage, who has just been debanked in the UK. Can you imagine for political reasons? If it happened to him, it may happen to all of us. 
Nobody's safe with our with our money. Um, they are, and this is going to be to happen with with all these services, essential services that we need, like um, applying for a job. It's very difficult for students who have, outs who are, for example, not vaccinated, to find an internship somewhere, find a job. We need to get our network together, and we need to start realizing again. I said this before, but we need to start realizing that we must help each other. And that is something that, to my great disappointment, many people that I've met in my life that were like-minded, that had the same directionally, the same ideas, they were very unwilling to do that. The conservatives I've met, so in the, in the past when I still define myself as such, um, they, they were much more eager to get a tap on the back from the establishment, from the left even, than to help another conservative. They were, they were very willing to distance themselves, to, to disavow. And we should stop doing it and completely. Just we are in the same boat and we may agree or more or less with each other. Sometimes somebody does something where you say, oh, I, maybe I wouldn't have said it in such a way. But fundamentally, we should not go along with the cancel culture that is designed to play us out against each other. And I think through a an social and economic framework, uh, there, there can also be a real upside to this. Because it, obviously this has a down, big downside. If you start to stand up to each other, you may also get a punch in the face. But if there's a real upside where we create a high trust network for people that don't, yeah, that, that are not willing to uh, stab each other in the back, then there's, there's, a, there's a real reason to be part of this club. And, and that may be strong enough to survive this flood, to stay in these biblical terms or in these climate change terms, this, this flood that is coming, this totalitarian flood that is going to run over us which with, with almost uh, unstoppable pace. But we may be able to resist it and, uh, and ultimately be there to, to restructure, rebuild society after it. I, I'm confident if we do that, that we can resist it. I yeah. always say councils of despair are always bad councils. Yes. Simply because <laughs> this tide is coming, it doesn't mean that we're all going to drown in the flood. We yeah. can always build uh, you know, our little places. Our, little platoon. Absolutely, we can, we, we can come through. And John, you would, Thierry calls you, I think, with good cause actually, as the intellectual force behind Brexit. You look a little embarrassed when we say that. But Brexit, the referendum itself, actually, put aside what ha has happened since when the establishment basically took it over and what has happened. The referendum itself was a breakthrough. And I think that's a thing which people should not yes. overlook. Yes. What, they, what it showed and what has massively frightened the political class here in Britain is that it exposed to them the truth that the country, <laughs> a, a large majority of people in England do not think as the establishment wants them to and has the, has the agency, the capacity to express itself and make its own decisions. And if you live in Britain, as of course I do, you know that this is having a major impact, 
still in the way in which politics are conducted here. The political class in Britain, in my opinion, has never felt more insecure. Mm. And if you want to understand why, go back to what happened in 2016. So given that that is so, there is no cause for despair. There, is pl there are plenty of people out there who would, who would be anxious to join the kind of movement that you've just described. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. My pleasure. My great Thank pleasure. You, and welcome to the Let's channel. do it again. <laughs> Let's Thank definitely you. do it again. John.